Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Job chapter 2. And we're going to be looking uh, again at the travails of Job. Last week we left uh, Job destroyed by the attacks of Satan. He lost all of his vast wealth and all ten of his children. And there he stood with robe torn, head shaved, prostrate on the ground, worshiping God. He gave one of the most remarkable expressions of faith ever uttered by a believer in times of great trial. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Incredible. He did not curse God to His face as Satan had hoped, but He praised God to His face. But a wicked heart has no shame and a wicked heart does not relent. So in chapter 2, we find that Job must endure round 2 of suffering from the immediate hand of Satan. It's like two hurricanes in a row. Florida has just been devastated by one hurricane. What if another came tomorrow? Same intensity, same size, maybe even bigger. That's what Job's about to endure. A second hurricane blast of affliction and pain that he has to endure. Job is about to lose the only thing he has left, and that's his health. Why the afflictions? Well, Job doesn't know this, we're told, but it's to prove to Satan, part of the reason, to prove to Satan that no matter what he did to God's saints, he cannot extinguish God's grace in their hearts. Faith can be battered. Faith can be bruised. It can falter and stumble and fall to the ground. Faith can be plagued by doubts and led astray by temptations. Faith can be weak and give way to the flesh. It can be small and buried under the worries and the fears of life. But true faith cannot die. It cannot totally nor completely fall from grace because God Almighty sustains it. So in verse 1 and 2 and 3, we are again secretly ushered into the council halls of heaven to step behind the screen of the stage of human history, and to overhear a dialogue between God and Satan, which tells us valuable information for understanding what's about to unfold. Again, Job has no information about this, but uh, Job later records this as he later learns it for our benefit and our blessing. 
his faith must respond to what's going to happen to him without this knowledge, which is one of the reasons why he's in the dark and struggles so much with it later on. But we begin reading in Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And all of this is basically exactly what we had read previously in chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8. It's a repetition. And all of this is, a, uh, is designed to just set up the fact that we're now in round two. It's introduced the same way. The same words are said in heaven. It's a repeat of the same because it's all gathering up this, this momentum that now the same thing is going to happen again, only the affliction will be different. So what's interesting is that again in verse 3, Satan is engaged by the Lord and the Lord initiates round number 2 by saying, have you considered my servant Job? Same thing he said in Job chapter 1. So he initiates the second trial. And again, God confirms Job's righteous character. There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And in effect, he says, Satan, you have failed. You have failed, but Job's faith has held. And God confirms that Job still holds his righteousness. He says in the latter part of verse 3, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. So Job has passed the first test with flying colors in spite of the devastation that he has endured in the first round of his torment and affliction. What's interesting is that the Lord adds in verse 3, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. So the Lord is acknowledging that Job was innocent, Satan, you have incited me to ruin him without cause. This is interesting language for sure. What does it mean? Well, on the one hand, God is taking full responsibility for ruining Job. He is expressing his complete, full sovereignty over everything that happened in chapter 1. He says, Job still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to ruin him, I ruined him without cause, even though it was Satan who was the immediate agent, but God is the ultimate cause. So God is taking full responsibility for ruining Job. God said that Satan incited him 
to ruin Job. But the word incited, we, have, we must be careful here because it does not imply, nor does it mean that Satan exerted his will over God's will, that Satan was able somehow to tempt God or to provoke God or to manipulate God to do something that he didn't want to do. So when you say, when God says, you incited me, it's not like in some way the devil triumphed over the Lord to bring about this affliction. That is not what that word is implying. Satan didn't trick God or deceive God into doing this that was not God's plan. This is made clear in the greater context. Again, if you go back to chapter 1. Verses 7 through 12. God initiated the encounter, just like He did here. Have you considered my servant Job? God initiates it all. God gives His approval to Satan's plan, and God limits it so He can only do what God wants Him to do. So God's in complete and total control. So even though it says that the devil incited him This is not any way making God do something that wasn't His original plan. James chapter 1, verse 13, that says that God cannot be tempted by evil. The devil is not tempting God to do something that's not within His good and holy purpose to to do. Ephesians 1, verse 11 says God works all things after the counsel of His will. This is His will being brought to pass. Not ultimately the devil's will. God is in control. Theologically, also, a finite, foolish, fallen creature like Satan cannot outthink and outreason the infinitely wise creator of the universe, whose scripture says his greatness is unsearchable, his understanding is unsearchable, his judgments and his ways are unsearchable and unfathomable. So a scrawny little unclean fallen angel cannot in any way prevail against an infinitely holy and wise God. That's an impossibility. And even to say that is an understatement of infinite proportions. The devil cannot make God do anything. So what is... What is God saying when He's saying that you incited me against Him to ruin Him without cause? Well, again, God is taking full responsibility for it. But listen to this. He's also holding Satan responsible. You incited me. And what God is acknowledging here is that Satan... You are responsible for the fact that you brought this evil plan out of your evil heart, and I gave approval to it, but all of this came out of your wicked heart. You're responsible. You incited me. So on the one hand, we don't interpret the word incited that in some way Satan lorded over God or somehow manipulated him to do what he didn't want to do, but we do understand that Satan is to blame on the lower level of responsibility.
It was a devil that incited God because it came out of his heart. It was his plan. And Satan was the active and immediate agent in bringing these destructive forces upon Job. And God is charging Satan with the guilt of ruining Job by his attacks. God is the ultimate cause. He's the sovereign cause. But Satan, nevertheless, is the immediate cause, the immediate agent. And God is merely acknowledging that uh, Satan's plot came out of his wicked heart and God gave approval to it, but it, it originated there. And God is sovereign over all that. We don't understand it all, but God takes full responsibility and still He holds Satan responsible because He was the active agent in bringing those destructions upon Job. So at this point, in verse 4 and 5, we now come to Satan's response to God pointing out that Job is still holding to his integrity and that God is now blaming the devil for originating at least out of his wicked heart the plan. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. So the devil responds to what God had said in verse 3 when God said, look, Satan, Job still holds his integrity. That's like, that's like uh, waving a, rad, a red flag in front of a raging bull. It's like the devil sees the, the, the integrity, the righteousness of Job like a red flag, and he wants to charge it again and knock it to the ground. So he answers the Lord and says, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. This, this first response, skin for skin, is a bit of a riddle. On the surface, it suggests the principle of equality of trade. Skin for skin, I'll trade you skin for skin. So it's a general principle of equality of trade. Now, what does it mean, though? Skin for skin. And most commentators that I read said that it's further explained in the rest of verse 4 when the devil goes on to say, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. In other words, a man will sacrifice everything to save his life. Now, that, that's Satan's self-centered philosophy of life. It's not always true. Sometimes it's true, not always true. But in general, he's saying that a man will sacrifice everything to save his life. And the point that the devil seems to be making here is that God, the previous disaster that you allowed me to do, took away all of Job's family, all of his fortune. But that was really a minor setback, a small loss, because he still kept his life so he kept his faith. In other words, yeah, we hit him pretty hard, but we didn't really get to the core of where a man's heart is, and that is to preserve his own life. You mess with that, 
and he'll curse you to his face. So he says in verse 5, However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. In other words, the, the previous loss was big, but not equal to the loss of his health or the loss of his life, which a man prizes above all other things. This is Satan's logic. So take that away, and you take away his faith too. So that seems to be the direction of his twisted mind. Touch his bones, touch his flesh, make him suffer in his body, and he will curse you. So in verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. So now Satan is given the authority and the power to touch his, his body and his bones. But he can't take his life, but he can make him as miserable and suffer physically and mentally as much as he can. So now God in his sovereignty turns Job over to round two. The bottom line of this, I think, is that the hand of Satan is controlled by the hand of God. And Satan and all the wicked are on a leash. This is something that Calvin brought out in one of his sermons. He said that even the wicked people today, and our world is full of them, I mean, just everywhere you look. But Calvin said that all the wicked people, just like the wicked devils and the wicked men, are all like instruments which God works with and uses to His own ends. In other words, we don't live in a world that's out of control. Yeah, there's a lot of sin and evil and wickedness. No, we live in a world that's under God's control, and He is using evil and wicked to accomplish His glory and bring about the good of His church. They plot, the wicked plot their evil and think they are resisting God, but God is actually accomplishing His will through them. So in verse 7 and 8, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd that's a broken piece of pottery to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. The sore boils that is described here is a very broad description. The details are not sufficient enough for us to make a clinical diagnosis of all that he was being afflicted with. Probably a multiple diseases are involved. But he's afflicted with a horrible disease that covers the entirety of his body from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Some have thought maybe leprosy, which is a boil-like lumps. Others have thought of elephantiasis. There are many other diseases that they have suggested. But again, we don't know for sure. But throughout the book, Job gives us a better understanding of what he's going through. 
Here's some of his descriptions of the pain. He was rendered unrecognizable by this disease. People looked at him. They didn't recognize him. He was so disfigured physically by what he was enduring. He couldn't sleep at night. It robbed him of rest. Whatever disease he was caused crusty and running skin. That is, sores that would crust over, crack open, and ooze with pus. He had nightmares at night. His mind was tormented in the darkness of the night. He wasted away. He was emaciated. He lost weight down to skin and bones. He described himself as decaying like a rotten thing, like a moth-eaten garment. He was full of weeping and failing vision, which may be the way to interpret it. He talked about this blackness was around his eyes. He had a broken spirit. He fell into depression. He had offensive breath to his wife. His wife didn't even want to be around him because his breath stunk and he was loathsome to his brothers they didn't want to be around him either he was skin and bones he suffered a fever constantly this inner burning fever his skin was turning black kind of like you think of frostbite or or some rotting disease of his skin, gnawing pains that never stopped on the inside. His family, his servants, his friends loathed him and deserted him. This is more than a bad day at the office. I mean, can you imagine going through that? It all adds up to a hideous picture of a man tortured by loathsome disfigurement and agonizing pain. And there's no modern medicine to mitigate the suffering. No painkillers. All he can do is take a broken piece of pottery and just try to relieve himself of the itch. It's like having a bad case of poison ivy. If you've ever had that, it just it drives you crazy with the itch. And, and even though the rubbing it with a broken piece of pottery causes its own damage, at least you get a little bit of lessening of the itch. He was doing everything he could. Job will think he's been afflicted with a terminal illness with no hope of recovery. He's sitting among... The pot, the, he, he's scraping himself with the pot shirt. He's sitting among the ashes back in verse 8. Probably a reference to the city dump where the trash is burnt outside the city, which could indicate that because of his affliction, he was now looked upon as an outcast, and they wouldn't let him come into the city anymore. Kind of under the Mosaic Covenant, if you had leprosy, you had to, you had to live outside the city. You had to cover your, your mustache when anyone started coming close to you. You had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so stay away from me. 
And maybe that was the type of stigma that he had because of the disease in the day in which he lived. Lived like a leper, quarantined outside permanently for either purity or public health reasons. Of course, his friends later will come and sit with him. So others have thought maybe this was more of a self-imposed isolation accepting the assessment of his own condition, his deplorable condition, that he had been reduced to basically human trash. So he's going to go out and live where all the other trash lives, and that's outside the city among the ashes. There he was mocked by the children, kind of like what they did to Elisha. People would spit at him. Job 30 verse 10 says, They abhor me and stand aloof from me, and they do not refrain from spitting at my face. People would walk by and see see Job and be so revolted by him, they'd just spit on him. So here's a man who had everything in his life. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his children. And now he has to endure this horrible physical affliction. And then possibly just to add further torment comes the words of his wife. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. This is another dimension of Job's suffering and his affliction. It brings confusion and chaos into his relationship with the only member of his immediate family that he has left, and that's his wife. So the only member of his family now vents her own anguish and frustration. She seems to both lash out at God as well as express a desire that her husband's suffering would come to an end. Curse God and die. She no doubt loves Him. She hates to see Him suffer but she doesn't understand his faith. The first comment she makes, do you still hold fast your integrity, indicates her own inner spiritual confusion, her lack of ability to comprehend the faith of this incredible man. She believes that Job's faith in God has not done him any good. She says, in effect, God has treated you badly. Look at your circumstances. Wake up. Why do you still worship God? Why do you still hold your integrity? And then comes those piercing words, curse God and die. To curse God possibly 
and probably she is unwittingly playing into the hand of Satan. Maybe the devil had gotten into her head for she's speaking the very thing the devil wanted to happen for him to curse God to his face. And now he hears it from his wife. Curse God and die. This could be Satan's final attempt to weaken Job's faith by using his own trusted and otherwise loving wife against him. She is angry with God and she encourages Job, her husband, to be angry too. She sees death as the only option to prolong suffering. And at the time when Job needed encouragement and a sympathetic ear most in his life, when he needed compassion, she took the devil's trident and speared it deep into his heart to drive him to despair so that the very woman created to be his helpmate became his adversary. Job's response, again, is found in verse 10, where he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept diversity, adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So though his body is afflicted with the most terrible of diseases imaginable, his faith is still standing strong. Though fever consumed him, his temper did not flare up against God. Though his health left him, his faith did not leave the Lord. He rebukes his wife by saying, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. The word for foolish here is as strong as found in the Hebrew language. It's Nabal. It describes one who has completely renounced God and His ways. So that in effect, what Job is telling his wife to, to not trust in God is spiritual folly of the worst kind. It's a form of practical atheism. Because a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And your advice to me is if there is no God, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. And then he expresses again amazingly his trust in God when he said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity from Him is implied. So that in all that Job did, he did not sin with his lips nor with his heart. So that Job acknowledges the sovereignty of God over his affliction but his unwavering allegiance to God in spite of it. This is again <laughs> incredible. He submits to God's will for good or for ill. And Job doesn't know why this is happening to him, but he knows who's behind it. It's his God. His God that he trusts. His God who's a good God, a wise God. A God who loves him. He trusts in that God, though he doesn't understand his circumstances. He knows who's behind it ultimately. 
And it's not the devil. It's God Almighty. And because he trusts in the good character of his God, he has learned to live in the eye of the hurricane. William Cowper, in one of the hymns we love to sing in this church from time to time, said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. For behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. And that was Job's confidence in God. So does God ordain sickness? heart disease, cancer, arthritis, COVID. He's sovereign over all of it. He uses all of it. God is the one who makes man to see and makes him blind, who makes a man to speak or makes him mute. God is sovereign. He has a purpose. He has a reason which our little finite minds most of the time cannot understand. But our faith is often tested by how we respond to our trials in life. We can respond in frustration, despair, complaining. Or like Job, we can humbly acknowledge the hand of God, trusting Him for His grace, knowing His purpose is good. Trusting God helps us find the peace in the eye of the storm as well. But Job's faith is certainly sustained by the grace of God. Without grace, he's cursing God all the time. Satan has expended all of his venomous malice against God's servant. And he had to witness his own utter failure in chapter 1. But God's grace is greater than our trials because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. But the fact that his faith is still persevering testifies to the glory of God's grace and how worthy God is of our worship even in times of loss. God is still worthy of our worship, though He takes it all from us because God is good, God is loving to His people, and God is wise. And we don't understand it, but even in times of loss, He is worthy of our worship. Many years ago, we lived in a house that had two rows of beautiful red tulips that would come up in the spring. And these tulips are absolutely beautiful. I mean, all the petals were perfectly overlapping in that beautiful cone shape. And during the, the, the daylight hours, they would just beam towards heaven. It, it was a beautiful thing. But one spring day, we had a horrendous storm uh, blow through with all the rain and the lightning and the hail and it it absolutely demolished all of our beautiful tulips it knocked the petals off it broke the stems 
the weight of the rain and the hail just crushed them all down to the ground. The petals were strewn across the yard because of the wind and just decimated all of them. The next day, the storm was gone. The sun came out. I remember looking out my window and I saw one little tulip that by the grace of God was not broken, but he had been bent over and he raised his little stalk up and all he had left was one petal, just one little petal. But he raised his face up to his creator, his maker in heaven, as it were, with his one little petal sticking out as if to say, God, I hardly even look like I'm a tulip anymore, but I have one little petal left, and with that petal, God, I worship you. That's the faith of Job. That's the faith that comes when he takes everything from you. He is still worthy of our worship because of who he is. And we trust Him for who He is. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. May God grant us all the faith of Job. I don't know what trials or troubles or illnesses you're facing today. But oftentimes we have a tendency to complain. I do. We have a tendency to grow impatient, to despair, to get frustrated. We need to take our eyes off our circumstances and put them on God. He's our Maker. He's our Sovereign God. He has a reason for everything He does. Every pain has a purpose. And may God enable us to find our trust in God to be a stronghold in times of trouble, a shelter in the midst of the storm, a solid rock when life seems to be falling away. So Job's faith gives us a godly example to entrust our own souls into the hands of God in times of trouble. But there's no greater example of trust in times of affliction than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. As Peter wrote of our Lord, while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. You see, pain, all pain, has a purpose in the plan of God. So does your pain. It has a purpose. But for Jesus Christ, His pain and His affliction was redemptive. He endured the pain not because of His own sin, but for ours. He died as our substitute. He who is holy and without sin took our sins upon Him and suffered pain of which Job knew not of. 
a pain so deep, so vast, so ultimately infinite in the curse and the wrath of God that he bore that no man can understand it. But he endured that pain for a purpose to save his people from their sins. And that brings us to our time of worshiping the Lord. His pain had a purpose, as does ours. But His pain bought our salvation and won our forgiveness. And because of what He endured, He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise because He endured all of His pain for us that we might praise Him and love Him and serve Him in return.